This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. The arts, sports, history, sometimes some policy, and never screaming, never yelling. And we love to tell soldiers' stories on this show, and first responders. And by the way, on the soldiers' front, we don't wait until Veterans Day or Memorial Day to tell those stories, because our men and women are out there every day, and always have been, all year round. And this story, well, it's a doozy. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to meet Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez later in this hour. But first, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And again, then we'll hear from Benavides himself tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant, Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. 
Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude. For service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. What a story, huh, folks? Yep, real American doing that. A real-life human being did that, not some movie character. And when we come back, we're going to hear from that real-life human being. We're going to hear from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez, Medal of Honor winner for his valor in Vietnam. And wait till you hear his voice. You're going to love him. More... After these messages, this is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our podcast there. Listen to what we do there. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. And we just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who is the man behind the legend? Here is Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began. I come from a little town named Quero, Texas. I was born there, in the Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father, at an early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle. We moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, by an hour and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs, shine shoes, sold papers, pick cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn a skill. I needed an education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard. And I liked what I saw in men in uniform. And I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learned the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army, and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. So I qualified to go to jump school at Fort Bend, Georgia. But the Dern recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. Well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know it as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learn oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross transatlantic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, and I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a southern accent. Feeling danke, danke, sir. So I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg. And Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to Vietnamese Infantry Unit. After a short period of time there, I stepped on a mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Clocker Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers. Now, most people would take a landmine, paralysis, and discharge papers as subtle hints to start plans for your retirement, but not Benavides. That night, I would slip out of bed 
and crawl to a wall, using my elbows and my chin. My back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against the wall, and I'd back myself up against the wall, and I'd stand there like Elijah the Indian. I'd stand there and move my toes right and left, right. Every single chance I got, a, I got. I wanted to walk. I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, that our president was not needed there, to burn the flag and what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back. I was determined because I remember when I was taught in jump school, that old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? So I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words. Never. So there I was at night, I'd slip out of bed. The nurses would catch me sometimes. They would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. They would tell the doctors in the morning. I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry. Even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. I jumped out of bed and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching, I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Benavides, if you walk out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out with a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again running five or ten miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam, physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor. But being a non-commissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. So I, so I went back to Vietnam in 1968. And so now he's back in Vietnam, and the war, well, it's ramping up. The latter part of April, I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligence information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye, the back, and the legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the McGuire rig. McGuire rig is nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In that case, there was two ropes. We hooked on, the enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our rope started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, it burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisted and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes, separated them, 
that dedication, that love of fellow men and country. I'll never forget that man. We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter he expired. There was nothing more he could do for his friend. And so Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez naturally got right out and back to work again. I was in another staging area waiting for our next assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice. Get us out of here. Get us out of here. Come in and get us out quick ASAP. I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind them. We saw a helicopter coming in to land and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped the door gunner, Michael Craig, 19 years old. We just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, My God, my mother and father. I asked the pilot, Who are the people on the ground? He said, Hey, he said, It's that black NCO, that non commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy rides. Leroy always got paid for top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So there was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter, got on the helicopter. We got on with the forward air controller to guide us in. He said, you can't go in there. You can't go in. It's too hot. Little did I know that I was going to spend six hours in hell. And when we come back, more from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez. His story, here on Our American Stories. And we just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun over the radio. So he decided to jump on a chopper against everyone's sane advice. As he says, he did not know that would be the start of his six hours in hell. He was practically a one-man army, providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly, wounded, and secure classified documents. Here again... Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. You heard what the president read the citation of how I earned the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through when I in, engaged in the hand-to-hand combat. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, 
I was holding my intestines in my hand. We lifted up the helicopter, had it over its payload. Blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked me in our staging area. And it started unloading, it started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified material, so if anybody had it, that, uh, he was on a helicopter. So they left, they left the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags. And I remember that my feet had been lifted, and I was inserted into the body bag, and I could hear that zipper coming up, and I thought, oh my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face, my eyes, and the blood had dried up in my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked, and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance, and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, sorry, there's nothing I can do for him. I, oh my God, and that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood, and finally, I'll find out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. So the doctor said, I think he'll make it. He'll... So I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying, I was moving so much at the co-pilot. He happened to look back and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, get his bayonet out, and he's gonna do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. <laughs> That's just too much for one day. <laughs> so they, we landed in the hospital at, at uh, Long Bend, and I was wheeled to the operating room, and as I was being lifted to my operating table, I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God, why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing. I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while, my buddy was transferred from there and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa. And that airplane that I was flying in, Matavak, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me. Benavides, you're not going to die on me. 
I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor. I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? Had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, that lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> so after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the Beach Pavilion, and I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career, and then I was awarded with a medal. And by the way, there are so many heroes in this story, as we learn, and he's quick to give credit. Those nurses, boy, they do unbelievable work. You're not going to die on me, Benavidez. And boy, did she make sure of it. After all of this, Benavidez recovered, and then he moved back to Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero. I appreciate the title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives, our mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospitals, disabled for life in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, life has a special flavor that protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud of being American, and even prouder. And I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. What a speech. We got to play that a few times a year. It just has to be done. You've never lived until you almost died. And those three words, duty, honor, country, and they're not platitudes when you hear it from this man. They're real. He's the real deal. This is Lee Habib, Mastin Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story. The Medal of Honor winner, Vietnam vet, and just what an American, and what an American story. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. OurAmericanNetwork.org.
www.thepeopleshow.org. is our American stories and one of the things we've come to love and I'm sure you love too is our stories about American history and as always those are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu that's hillsdale.edu At the turn of the century, baseball was by far the most popular sport in America, and almost everyone was participating in it, including a religious colony in Benton Harbor, Michigan, founded by an eccentric man named Ben Purnell called the House of David. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with the story of a baseball team of outcasts that took America by storm. Growing up in Berrien County, Michigan, I always knew of the House of David's existence, mostly due to the curiosity they brought. But what I didn't know was that they actually made a massive impact on the country outside of Benton Harbor. And one of the ways they did that was in baseball. Started as a way to deal with teenage boys and their religious belief as a colony in celibacy. Here's Chris Seriano, founder of the House of David Museum in St. Joe, Michigan, with more on that story. The House of David baseball team was started because Benjamin loved baseball. And in 1914, they had been going for 11 years by then, right? They have a lot of teenage boys with a whole lot of pent-up energy, and they can't be with the opposite sex no way, no how. They need something to do to get rid of this energy. So he thought, let's play some baseball. They played all the local teams, and they were good. But they weren't great yet until they managed to bring in professional players from major league teams like the Cubs. It all started with Paul Mooney. Uh, He was a superstar pitcher, long black hair, super, super talented. And he was recruited by the Cubs early on in the the mid-teens. And he considered playing for the Cubs, but he wouldn't cut his hair or shave. And it wasn't, that was the rule. The major leagues, Major League Baseball required people to be clean shaven back then. And the House of David, by the mid 1920s, they were considered world talents in baseball. They could beat semi-pros. They could beat the major league teams if they had an opening and they would play them and they did on many, many, many occasions. They could beat the major league people and they thought, you know what, we want to be a part of that. 
and they tried to join and they were denied because they wouldn't cut their whiskers off and cut their hair and they absolutely would not do that because their belief was that man should be in the likeness of Jesus and they didn't believe they could ever ever shave and they wouldn't for just to be able to play baseball so they barnstormed. Barnstorming was a, a team that just takes off and travels the country. They'll play college teams, semi-pro teams, farm teams, major league teams. They'll play anybody and everybody. They'll play in your stadium or they'll play in your cow pasture. They didn't care. If you want to play baseball, let's go. That's what barnstorming was. They're, they're storming the country. They're playing in farms, barns, uh, anywhere. So when they were playing baseball, they had a good time. They, and they invented that what they called a pepper game, which was where three guys during a fifth inning stretch, three guys would stand across from each other and throw the ball so fast between their legs, around their neck, behind their back, they juggle it, and all of a sudden the ball would disappear and the crowd would go silent during all that cheering that they were watching. They'd go totally silent, wondering where the ball was, and then the house, one of the House of David guys would pull his big beard up and he'd have it stuck underneath his beard. And the you know, crowd would roar, and it was good stuff. And so they mixed comedy with their talent and could beat you while they made you laugh, basically. But rejected from the MLB because of their differences, the House of David instead played with others who had been rejected because of their own. That's one of the coolest stories that there is, in my opinion, is the fact that here's these long-haired, whiskered white guys from Benton Harbor, Michigan, mastering baseball across the country. And during a time when they couldn't join the major leagues because they wouldn't shave, the Negro teams formed their own leagues because they couldn't join the major leagues because they were black. And so those Negro League teams invited the House of David to be a part of them, which is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing because their popularity helped lay the foundations of equality for black baseball teams years before black Americans would be allowed to play in the MLB. And they teamed up with, and Lloyd told the story the best. Lloyd, as in one of the House of David's baseball enforcers. He told a story about how they would travel to a town where they would, on a Saturday, and they'd have a doubleheader scheduled. And this town was known for baseball, wherever it was across America. And he said, Chris, we would travel our team, our White House of David team, in one bus, and we'd have the Negro team in another bus. And within 50 miles of the main town, Every little town was closed. Nobody was around. It was like, shut them down like ghost towns. We got to the place where we were playing ball. It was like a ginormous festival going on. People in the streets and music and thousands of people everywhere waiting for this game to happen. And he said, we'd show up early, very early, and we'd put on a show. And here we are, we know we're the draw. We're the reason those people are coming to that town that day is to watch the House of David play. So he said we would make them laugh. We would 
stand in front of the barbershop windows with our long hair and wave it around and play music and braid our whiskers in front of the barbershop and, and dance in the streets. And they were all musicians too, so they would play music and their fiddles and their banjos and sing and just get the whole town really energized. And he said we'd go early, very early, to the manager's office at the stadium where we were playing. And, we, and he said it was uh, himself and his father, Hans Dalliger, who was a driver for the team, but he also wore a uniform, and Frank Weiland, who was a professional boxer and wore a uniform, but mainly a bodyguard for the team, but he looked like a player, big guy. And he said, Chris, we'd walk in, and now these are scrappy looking guys, a lot of whiskers, a lot of long hair, uh, big wool uniforms, probably dirt all over them from playing so many days with no, no shower or, or laundry. And we'd stand in this manager's baseball office and say, Mr. Manager, you know, we're, we're so happy to be here. We're so excited that your town is just packed full of people. And we're going to make you proud today that we came to your town. But, sir, here, here's one thing. Before you play us at that 11 o'clock, game this morning. You're going to play the Kansas City Monarchs or the Homestead Grays or the Negro team that's on our other bus right outside of your town. And they're waiting to play. And you have to make that work because you've never even allowed them in your stadium before today. And not only that, but after the game, we're, we're going to play you the second game. And then tonight, we're going to both teams are going to eat in the restaurants that you didn't allow them to go in and we've rented rooms for both teams at the hotel that they never have been able to stay at before. And here's the deal, sir. If you can't get that approved, if we can't make that happen, that's okay. Because right past your town, there's another town sitting on rain check, excited that we might be there to play their team today. So if you can't do that, it's okay, we'll just go on. And he said, Chris, it was total silence in that room. Or a clipboard would fly, or the guy would slam his desk. But he said, every time, guess what? They would say something to the effect of, okay, House of David, I'd come back in the room and, you know, we'll agree to what you want today. We'll do this. But don't you ever expect to come back to this town again after today? And they said, you know, he said, we'd stand at attention. We'd say, thank you, thank you, sir. We'll make you proud. And he said, guess what? When those Negro teams hit the field, they were unbelievable. They were so talented, so funny. They loved to make people laugh, just like the House of David and more. And there was standing ovations the whole game. And he said, by the time we got up there, it was like the 4th of July. Those people were so pumped up. They would lighten off fireworks during fifth inning stretch. It was amazing. He said when we went to the restaurants, we left big tips for both teams. And in the hotel, they treated us like kings. And guess what? The next year, we both got invited back. And we did that town after town after town across America, long before Jackie Robinson hit the majors. And great job to Monty Montgomery finding that story and putting it together. A special thanks to Chris Soriano, curator of the House of David Museum, also the founder. And my goodness, it sounds a lot like what the Harlem Globetrotters are doing with basketball. 
barnstorming the country, challenging guys to play. What a great unknown story, and it comes and hails from Benton Harbor, Michigan. When I was a kid, I'd heard about barnstorming tours, and our 14-year-old basketball team would get on our bicycles and go to town to town and city to city. And when a bunch of scraggly white kids showed up in Newark, New Jersey's playgrounds, all African-American, to catch a game, as my dad told me, we'd learn a lot, and we did. And all over New York metropolitan area, this little Jersey kid learned how to play ball by barnstorming from town to town. A great sports story, the House of David story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now, the second part of my two-part conversation with one of the most extraordinary leaders in education. Laura Sandifer is the co-founder of Acton Academy, a network of over 270 parent-created but student-led schools where every child is on a hero's journey to find their unique calling that can change the world. The schools have guides rather than teachers. Students self-pace their own education and can have a half a dozen apprenticeships by the time they graduate high school. You can hear part one at OurAmericanStories.com and search for Acton Academy. And now let's go to Laura with part two. People don't often talk about this when they're talking about schools and learning and education, but I think it's a love story. I think the thing that binds us all together, the people in this network, there are now 271 Acton Academies that are all founded by parents whose children are in the school. So that is a fuel of love that's driving just simply the, the startup of an Acton Academy is this desire for our children to find their own potential. Well, to me, that's a love story. And I think every love story includes the agony and the ecstasy. And I think when we acknowledge that human relationships are hard and life is hard, but it's also beautiful, that that is a, that is a bonding force. So we're not all about just getting into college and finding a job, we're talking about the identity of a human being. And I think that that, I can't describe it as anything else but love. And it's a love for this gift of life. And it's a love for the curious mind. And it's a love for joy and for even fun. I mean, there's lots of laughs. There are tears in, in, in an acting studio, but there's lots of laughter and joy. And it's just a gratitude and a humility about this gift of life we're given. And I don't know how to explain it, except that it's that same haunting feeling that humans have experienced since the beginning of humankind, when when they would just sit out around a campfire and share stories at the end of the day. And I think at the end of the day, we want to sit around and share stories with each other. And we want to we want to learn from each other. And it goes way beyond just a specific 
set of content that we should know. I mean, yes, there's things we should know and learning is fun, but the truth is we really want to know how to experience life well with other people. That means learning how to give an authentic apology. I mean, that's a skill set we actually deliver at Acton. It's really how to become a friend and how to be kind and how to be honest. I think that's one of the, the most difficult in terms of pain learning experiences is when someone lies on their work and they fake their points that they earned or something and, and they're held accountable and they're required to write an apology in order to be welcomed back into the community. So, you know, it's facing where we fail and it's facing when we aren't virtuous because we're not all virtuous all the time. And so, but, but being able to admit that that's pretty huge. So I think it's, it's very gritty. It's very earthy. It's not beautiful and systematic because we're talking about humans. And I think at the end of the day, just embracing the mystery of it all is a pretty exciting place to be. It's very different from other schools where you, you don't want to end with mystery. You want to end with assessment and moving on to something different. We're, we're just going to relish in the idea that we don't have all the answers but we're enjoying the journey very much. Let's talk about the data and the assessment, because how do you fare? In, in other words, as you, as you embarked on this journey, you had to be thinking, well, how are our kids going to measure up? How are they going to do on standardized tests? How did that work out? And, and how did you feel about it when it was happening? Because you had to really worry about that on some, some level. Absolutely. I was scared to death because I thought, gosh, what if, you know, what if something falls through the cracks and they really aren't learning math? So yes, the very first year we decided to do a basic standardized test at the beginning and at the end of the year. And that was it. And it was just, we weren't going to talk about it much. We were just going to do it. And I remember the day that at the end of the year, when Kaylee, our wonderful first guide, she delivered the test, the Stanford 10 standardized test. And the day came when she was going to give me the results. And I thought, oh boy, you know, here we go. This could all be a big flop and we're going to have to start over and figure out what to do. And when she sat down, she goes, Laura, they all moved up. It was on average three and a half grade levels. And I, we started laughing because we're like, oh, okay, I guess we don't have to worry then. And we decided then every year we will deliver a standardized test because we do want data. Data is a good thing. We just don't want to waste time giving meaningless tests, but we do give a test every single year so that we can see, you know, the results. We've had to change tests three or four times because the children end up maxing out the test. So, you know, the middle schoolers were maxing out the high school test, which meant that they were plateauing from then on. And so we, we changed the tests up. And after a few years, the parents stopped asking for the results. And that was a wonderful sign when we finally got parents who actually could see their children thriving without the need for the, those test results. Now, we get a lot of criticism saying that we're just, you know, skimming the cream of the crop kids and those are the only ones who come to Acton. But that's actually not true. We were surprised when we started testing at the very beginning of the year when we were recruiting, you know, you know growing and recruiting, a majority of our Students were coming in below grade level, and then a smaller percentage were way above grade level. And we realized what we were attracting were people who were either bored in the traditional school 
or people who were not doing well at all in the traditional schools. So, but in general, those two groups would also progress. Now it's on average um, three grade level each year. And we're listening to Laura Sandifer, co-founder of Acton Academy, also the author of Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. When we continue, more with Laura Sandifer and her story and the story of Acton Academy, a love story. It continues here on Our American Story. continue with Our American Stories and Laura Sandifer's story. She's the co-founder of Acton Academy, a network of over 270 parent-created but student-led schools across the world. Let's return to Laura on their students advancing an average of three grade levels each year. So that, that data is real, but what the, the, mo- the more important data, in my opinion, is what we see once the children start in middle school and high school, they, they gain apprenticeships out in the real world. So they're in charge of discovering what their interests are and then finding someone in their field of interest who will hire them for an apprenticeship. So they're getting out in the world, getting real world experience. And we ask each apprenticeship mentor to write a recommendation or give feedback at the end of it. And to me, those are the feedback pieces, the data pieces that are most interesting, because when these young people are out in the world actually doing real work, they're on time, they're reliable, they're problem solvers, they're trustworthy. And those are the things that I think will prove to serve them as they go off into the world on their own. So it's that real world feedback plus the academic feedback. But honestly, those online programs they work with every day give more data than you can possibly imagine, you know, how long your child worked on a math problem, for example, you can, if you wanted to, you could analyze so much different data just based on the online learning programs. But to me, it's more of the, you know, how are they doing when they step out and have to communicate with adults they don't know? How does that go for them? And that's when I'm excited to, to, I have full confidence that they can go out and get jobs and communicate well wherever they go in the world. I think you'll appreciate this. I had a really high LSAT, went to a great law school, and I taught at Stanley Kaplan. And I was everybody's favorite teacher because kids would come in, and if they didn't have good LSATs, I would encourage them to go to law school any way they could because it didn't matter what their LSATs were, and it didn't matter what law school they went to, that they could still be great lawyers, and that the LSAT, even their college grades, had very little to do materially with how good of a prosecutor you might be. In other words, how the system was judging you as a potential lawyer had nothing to do with your ability to be a potential lawyer. And it was just a great sort. And this was the best way they could think of sorting people. It freed so many people. I had letters for a decade after. I went to Seton Hall Night School and I'm a prosecutor. And that was always my dream. Thank you. I didn't get a good LSAT score and I was a C student in college, but I'm a lawyer today and I'm a damn good lawyer. 
Um, talk about um, that because that has got to give you're you're bypassing a lot of these filters, Laura, that leave good and talented people out of things they should be in. Yes. Oh my goodness. And I think you know it's not always a straight line path to know what you want to do anyway. So I think trying on a lot of different jackets along the way and seeing if you like something is a really good idea. And that's what those apprenticeships do. So I'll give an, a, an example. We had one wonderful young woman who wanted to be a lawyer. So of course she wanted her apprenticeship to be at a law firm. Well, she was only 14 years old and the lawyers were like, oh, we can't really, we can't really hire a 14 year old to do this, but we'll, you know, you seem like a nice student and you're curious. We will give you an opportunity to, come volunteer and have, have a free internship with us. So, so she did that. And then the head of the firm called me and said, actually, we would love to offer her a job. I think there's something she can do here. So this young girl started kind of progressing in her internship levels at this law firm. She was sitting in with clients and getting to work on some immigration issues. And she ended up taking an online law school course at Penn and then after the experience, she came back and she said, that was a good experience, but I found out I don't want to be a lawyer. She turns out to be a, an engineer. It took her a while to figure that out. If she had just followed her test scores, she got a perfect score on the PSAT. She had perfect grades on the pre-law classes she was taking. She could have easily followed that route, but then her heart would not have been happy 20 years down the road. She had to explore a bit, play around a bit until she found something that actually made her excited to wake up in the morning. So I think another, you know, kind of the different side of that coin is you could do really well on tests and just be shuffled through a system because that's kind of what you're good at on the test, but it doesn't make your heart sing at the end of the day. So that's what I think is the surprising fun thing we're finding is that people kind of take a path that is not expected. And so that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm always curious about is not what people look like they're going to be good in, but what they end up trying on and exploring. We have another quick story about a young girl who decided she wanted to be a baker and she got her apprenticeship doing that and loved it, did really well. But then she realized actually what she loved was helping other people learn to be a baker. She ended up then realizing, oh, it's education I want to go into. And so that's the route that she's taking and so I think I think just letting go of expectations of what paths should look like is a really good place to start. And once again, we get circle back to that idea of being surprised. I think being willing to let go of expectations and be surprised is a good stance for educators and parents to hold on to. You know, David Epstein's book, Range, gets into this idea that what you think you might want it to do as a young athlete, for instance, ends up being, well, you're interested in this other sport. And he looked at Tiger Woods, who focused on golf, and Roger Federer, who didn't play tennis till he was like 13. Uh, and no one pushed him into tennis. He just discovered it. And a lot of the other sports that he played, he liked. And the cross-training helped him. But the idea that people know what they want to do when they're 14 or 18, or I didn't know what I really wanted to do until I was about 35. And my dad, thank goodness, always said, just keep figuring it out, son. I mean, I had a, a great educator who came from almost the act and spirit of discover it. Keep trying to discover what you're really meant to do. And luckily, I had a parent like that. Many of my peers 
uh, if they had ever decided to go to a great law school and not practice law, it would have been a big disappointment to them. My dad could have cared less if I didn't practice law. Didn't mean anything to him. That's such a gift. I love that. I think that's so, that's just a wonderful gift to give children. I think another gift that's wonderful to give children is also the idea that having a deliberate practice, getting really good at mastering a skill is also really important so that you, you, you can do specific things in the world. It's important to know how to do something, not just to know something. And so that's another element, I think, um, really holding high standards of excellence for whatever you want to go into, um, being the best at that and working really hard to improve every single day. That's one thing that I think people are surprised at. How, how can children hold standards of excellence for each other. People think that's kind of impossible, but at Acton, it's pretty simple. The idea of excellence is an individual thing. It's me- you're measuring yourself against what you did last time. So the first time you do something, you say, was that your best effort? Yes. Okay. That's excellent. The next time you compare the same thing to your previous example and say, did it get better? Did you improve? Yes. Then that's excellent. And then finally, when you get to the point that you're getting really high in the level of that skill, you compare it to a world-class example or you win a competition. Um, So it's constantly improving against yourself. And that's something that I think is also important for young people to have, not just kind of popping around and trying all sorts of different things, but really honing in and trying and having a deliberate practice that you, you work hard to get good at specific skills. And then you can use those in ways that make the world a better place. We talk about finding a calling and some people think, well, what if someone doesn't find a calling? What, no, not everyone's going to be a president or a prime minister or a CEO of a big company. And we're like, no, a calling is simply being the best at what you are. You could own you know, a laundromat, but change the entire culture of a community because how you interact with your customers and your employees, you know, the stories of like the mailman who, who changes the world because everyone is so excited to see him every day. He knows everybody's name in the neighborhood. So the, the idea of a calling isn't grandiose. It's just being really good where you are in the world and using your gift, your skill to make that little neck of the world a little bit better. And that's so true. Our own Lance Reed, who runs the local Chick-fil-A, it's a calling. And there's a princess ball every year, and a 1,000 people show up in our little town. And there's a a date night for couples to come out and listen to good, clean, wholesome comedy. And all that they do at that local Chick-fil-A to integrate into the community shows you that making a chicken sandwich, well, that can be a calling, too. I love what she said about learning how to not just know something, but do something. And getting that mastery of skill sets is so important. And the tests are important, but mastering relationships, mastering and being good at being a worker, being a good team player, showing up on time, problem solving, how we do life is what Acton Academy is so interested in. When we come back, more with Laura Sandifer, author of Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. And if you want to learn more, about attending an Acton Academy or launching one in your neighborhood, go to actonacademy.org. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and Laura Sandifer's story. She's the co-founder of Acton Academy. And let's return to Laura on thinkers and doers that have shaped Acton's model, starting with this guy named Socrates. Well, Socrates was the ancient Greek who taught young people through only asking questions. And one of his famous quotes that we think about a lot is the wisest man in the world because he knew he knew nothing. So he is our great questioner and his method of not only just asking questions, but a deep faith and trust in young people to discover truth on their own. Those, those are grounding ideas for us at Acton Academy. We also have as one of our heroes that contributed to our design of Acton, Maria Montessori. So the Italian physician who studied children by observing them. And instead of having a learning system done to children, she actually followed the child and came up with a brand new way of looking at the learning environment. She worked with orphans, children who had been abandoned, basically, and found that when she created an environment and gave them choice and work to do, they, you know, academically progressed to catch up with children who had been in fine learning institutions. Her belief that following the child, trusting them to work at their own pace, but setting up the environment for them to be able to make choices and solve their own problems was critical. She also was the person who believed that the mixed ages, that peer-to-peer learning was critical. So her science, really is solid and has been proven, obviously, over the century that people have been using Maria Montessori's method, but her ideas of children making choices, but being bound with clear boundaries was really significant in our formation that we want our eagles to have freedom of choice, but we also know that having boundaries, clear consequences for crossing a boundary is critical. But what I claim most from Maria Montessori that helps me every single day is she came to this as a scientist. So every day it was with fresh eyes, watching as if for the first time what a child was doing. I think so often as adults, teachers, parents, we carry baggage around our thoughts about children, what they did the day before. And we, you know, we're still frustrated with how they did that. And if you could come every single day, leave your own baggage at the door, walk in with fresh eyes, it changes everything in how you deal with children. So that's one of the things that I personally love a lot about what Maria Montessori brought to the world. Another mentor and hero to us is Sugata Mitra, who I don't know if you know his work, um, the hole in wall experiment he did in the slums of Calcutta, but he basically put a computer, like an ATM machine kind of computer in the middle of these slums and, and had cameras and just watched what would happen. His, his theory was children can learn without teachers. And he, his studies are just so shockingly wonderful that he found children gathering around the computer, never having worked with one before. And pretty soon they were hacking in and found the Disney, <laughs> the Disney website. And then they suddenly were learning English, and it became chaotic and crazy. And then he observed that it was the 12-year-old girls who came in and started organizing the young people. His, his work was so profound because it really, for the first time in recent years, put into question the role of teacher 
he came and visited Acton Academy and has been just a, a wonderful friend and mentor to us. So Sugata Mitra is another one. But, but one that I think is a, was a really special friend and hero to us was a man named Oliver DeMille. He wrote a book called The Thomas Jefferson Education, Teaching a Generation of Leaders for the 21st Century. And we were just intrigued with his thoughts and so invited him over to our house. And as we were sitting there talking in our living room, he started sharing about his own background. And he said that even though his parents were teachers and they didn't watch a lot of television or any, you know, have lots of videos in their house, it was all based on books in their house. He couldn't read for longer than he was supposed to not be able to read. And he went to school and his father was the principal of the school and he was performing pretty badly on the tests. And so the school district decided that he should be sent to the special education class for the students with special learning needs. And so he was dragged away from his friends and put into the special class. And he described how worried he was as a child and how scared and sad he was to be put in this situation. And then after not too long, his father walked into that classroom and took him by the hand and just walked him out and led him down the hall to the advanced class and opened the door and just said to Oliver, you belong here. And Oliver shared that with those words, everything changed. And sure enough, he became a fluent reader and a wonderful thinker. But what he said changed Jeff and me because he said, my father taught me that no one should work with children unless they believe that each child is a genius. And it was his conversation with us that day that made us really pursue that one idea each child is a genius and we would never ever hire anyone who thought otherwise or questioned that belief. So those are a few of the mentors and heroes we pulled from. And Sal Khan also of Khan Academy was an early hero of ours and has become a a friend. And we just admire so much what he has done for the world by freeing up young people to learn anything through Khan Academy. Yeah, and at their own pace, Laura, which is so important for learning. It, it is, I think, uh, what technology has delivered to the individual learner that nothing else had ever been able to do like it before. Talk about the role of technology. You've got Socrates, and this is before Christ, and you've got technology in someone like Sal Khan, who was born probably, what, in the 1960s or 70s, maybe even 80s. Um, talk about the merger of old and new, but particularly the role of technology in Acton Academies. Well, to me, technology is what frees us all to learn anything. And it, it, in a way, it's miraculous that you can get instant feedback on what you're working on, which makes the student-teacher ratio one-to-one because you, through those programs, they adapt to where you are and you get feedback just for your own work. That's pretty astounding, and and it's not necessarily fun. We think of technology as a tool. We don't think it's the, the be-all, end-all to everything, but it's a magnificent tool when you know how to use it. So we use this tool, but we also know that more importantly than the technology is the mindset of the person using it and being purposeful in why you're using it. So, you know, you've heard the saying, if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you see everything as a nail. We know that technology can do some things, but it can't do everything. And what we have found is most important is a human relationship behind the tool of technology. So having a mentor or a guide 
who supports you and encourages you when you feel like quitting, having a culture, an ethos with a, behind you when you move to work with these technological tools. I've, I've taken a lot of online courses that I end up just quitting halfway through because I just don't feel the personal connection or the necessity to finish. I got what I needed and I just leave it. And I think that that's not what we want. What we really want is people to know what tool to use and when to use it and then get off and do something meaningful in the world with it. And you're listening to Laura Sandifer, Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down is a terrific read. Go to Amazon and buy it. Also, to learn more about attending an Acton Academy or launching one in your neighborhood, go to actonacademy.org. My goodness, it's so true what Montessori taught Laura the lesson, that primary one of the fact that we all carry baggage, ours and the baggage about our own children, and we've got to leave that at the door every day. Look forward, not backwards. And also, Mitra's studies in India, kids can learn without teachers. You bet. And of course, DeMille and that lesson that the father taught the son about genius being in every child. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, this great education story, a love story, as Laura so well put it, because in the end, that's what really, really teaching is all about. More with Laura Sandifer, her story, and Acton Academy's story, here on Our American Story. Continue with our American stories and the final portion of our two-part story with Laura Sandifer, co-founder of Acton Academy, a network of over 270 parent-created but student-led schools across the world. Let's return to Laura. There's there's truths in this world, and the human relationship is something that none of us can really undo. The human drive to have a life that is meaningfully connected to others is probably the most motivating factor for anything. So the questions that we have that drive the Acton journey, I think are, are important for all humans. And this is why some of the most transformed people we deal with are the parents whose children go to Acton, because maybe people haven't asked them these questions. And the three big questions we deal with are, did I accomplish something meaningful? Was I a good person? Whom did I love and who loved me? So this idea is we all want to learn, but the idea of learning is so that you can do something with it. The end of the hero's journey is not just finding the treasure. The end of the hero's journey is returning home to use that treasure to help others. So all of this is about doing something meaningful for the world because that's what haunts our hearts. And that's why the ancient Greece, those those myths, they're all about the haunting of doing something important in your life. I remember in my own life, um, I, after college, went into aviation insurance. And I lived in London and then in New York City. And I remember sitting in a cubicle. I was on the 52nd floor of this high rise. And I lived in Brooklyn, but would take the subway straight into the bottom of my building and take the elevator up. And it was one winter night. So at five o'clock, it was already pitch dark. And I remember sitting there in that cubicle going, I haven't seen the sky 
in days. And there's a possibility I could wake up 10 years from now and still be in this cubicle and rarely have seen the sky. And it was in that moment of, of literal darkness, but also psychological darkness. I thought, this isn't what, this isn't what I was called to do. Although, you know, it was, it was a fine job. And for some people that would be great. And it was at that moment that I said, I've got to go back. I want to be in an environment where people are learning all the time. And I went to my boss and I said, I'm so sorry, but I want to be a teacher. And he looked at me and just said, good for you. I'm really excited you made that decision. And we said goodbye. And I went back and, and that's when I went back and got my master's. But it was that, that haunting feeling that I think is what drives us as humans, whether we acknowledge it or not. And what we're doing is simply acknowledging it and calling it out and saying, you deserve to find a calling and change the world. So talk about growth, your worries, and where you are now. The parent part of this equation is the hardest part of all because um, it's a stretch for parents to send their child to an acting academy not just because, you know, it's a private school, and I know there are financial sacrifices, even though we try to keep it as low cost as possible, but the stretch is we embrace failure and we don't intervene when there's a struggle and we don't tell your child what to do. So for parents to enter into that is, is a big leap from what our culture asks of parents. I think parents identify with you know, it's, it's important to parents to have their ch children be achieving good things because it makes them look like a good parent. We kind of take the opposite approach, and it's really hard for parents. So, uh, so I admire the parents who join us. It's a stretch, and we actually, part of my job is simply encouraging parents when things get hard. But we had a few courageous parents start with us at the very beginning, and if it weren't for them, none of this would have happened. But they trusted us. I think a turning point for me was when we did start to grow because other people thought, oh, this is a place where children are happy and I just want my child to be happy. So people started to apply and I would accept them. And then th when things got hard, they would want to quit and they would leave. And it would always be a pretty traumatic departure because it wasn't, you know, they didn't feel like it was a good thing we were necessarily doing. The ones who stayed though, this, uh, this is what I think is important to think about when you think of learning it's, this is a long-term goal we're talking about. Learning happens slowly and not linearly. Very often it's in cycles and it's, you know, roller coaster. But if you can keep your eye on the horizon while enjoying the day, that's, that's the ticket to this working. So the parents who were able to do that were along for the ride and loving it. So we basically have gotten better and better at describing exactly what the acting journey is. So when someone's applying, there are no mysteries. And I, I say, you know, your child will cry, your child will get, will get hurt, but your child will also learn to get back up and get in the game and stick with something when it gets hard. And so we've gotten better about talking to parents about the journey, about what we promise to do and deliver. For parents who choose this, they are people who probably had a loving but rough childhood on their own. They know that learning is hard. They know that life can be hard, and they want their child to experience that so that they can be confident problem solvers in their own life. Parents who are wanting more of a prestigious degree because they think that is what is the ticket to success in the future, those are the ones that 
probably would not be a fit for Acton Academy. We aim for competence more than prestige in our outcomes. And so it's not necessarily a prestigious degree, but, but what parents see that they get excited about is what their child can do. One of my favorite things that they can do is what I hear from the grandparents. They come to me almost always, I get the same response from grandparents when they come visit the school is, I have the most fun conversations with my grandchildren now. Thank you so much. What's fun about the Socratic method is children gain a voice and are able to talk about anything. They're not afraid to disagree with someone or to be disagreed with. It's not an emotional conflict when there's a disagreement. It's a fun experience. So the idea of simple family communication around the dinner table being a metric for a school doing a good job is, is one of my favorite ones. And we hear that most often from the grandparents who are so surprised when they come over and they can hold these wonderful conversations with their young grandchildren. So that's one of my favorite things. But the, I really give credit to the parents who choose this because it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy journey. It is a wonderful, loving journey. But like I said earlier, love, love is not all about feeling good all the time. It's about letting go. And part of my job is to support parents through the letting go process, which is actually a real act of love, I think. Let's, uh, I wanted to close with a, a passage because I thought it was just so apropos. And it's uh, in Chapter 9, More Parents Pick Up the Torch. A magical twist was happening in my personal Acton Academy story. With each month that passed, I was growing. And so were the other parents who had committed to this journey with me. As our children launched into their hero's journeys, we parents were becoming braver. We were learning to kill our tendencies to project our personal desires onto our children and to protect them from difficulty. We were becoming learners again, even dreamers. That's spectacular, Laura. That's spectacular. Well, thank you. And I, I still feel like I'm in that state of mind of, of learning and, and growing and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply curious where all of this will lead, but I also, I feel a yearning to find a new calling in my life. And so I think the idea of a calling just continues. You may not have one, you may have three or four in your life, but the idea that it's ongoing is really exciting to me. A mom came up to me the other day and she said, you know, I woke up the other day and I realized I'm, I keep telling my children to be on a hero's journey. And I realized I myself wasn't doing that. I was just living my humdrum life. And she said, I've had a yearning to have an urban farm and help some of the refugees in town with farming. And she went on in this story of how she has started this urban farm and she has found a group of refugees she's going to work with. She started, started talking so fast and so excitedly. And I thought, aha, yay, here's another parent who is finally finding a calling in our own life. And to me, that's the best parent. The best parent is someone who is living a happy life, not overly stressed, doing meaningful work. That's what you want your child to aspire to. And if you're stuck at home feeling stressed and unhappy and just forcing your children to do important work, that's not helpful. So if we parents can just live out our own best lives, we don't have to be the perfect parent. That story itself will be the teacher to our children. And you're listening to Laura Sandifer. And my goodness, what a beautiful hour. And to listen to our other hour spent on the story of 
her journey, her hero's journey, because boy, is she living one herself with Acton Academy and all the parents doing the same. Go to OurAmericanStories.com and just look up Acton Academy on our search bar. Also, by all means, get the book Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. And you can learn more about attending an Acton Academy or launching one in your own neighborhood at actonacademy.org. And my goodness, there's so much good stuff here, especially that part about the biggest transformation occurring in the parents of Acton, learning to let go, learning the kids to direct their own journey. It's so important. And by the way, those three big questions that matter at Acton, did I accomplish something meaningful? Was I a good person? Who did I love and who loved me? My goodness, you can't ask more important questions to young people and to older people. And most importantly, I thought, was this idea of the hero's journey. And the key part is returning home and doing something important where we all live, something good and something meaningful. A remarkable story, Laura Sandifer's story. Her husband, Jeff, too, and the entire family went on this journey together. Their stories, Acton Academy's story, an unfolding one here on Our American Stories.